seat. Father, none of us would be here if it was not for the decision you made to send your son to deal with our sin problem. And we love you. And out of grateful hearts, come to you this morning and offer our worship as we start our week. I pray that you would be on the throne of our lives as we surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit, his empowerment, his guidance, to live the kind of different life that we've been studying as we look through the Beatitudes. Father, you know that we can do nothing on our own. And I ask that you would empower me, specifically at this moment, to preach the word of God. I pray that you would build up your church. And I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be as if Jesus Christ were physically present today speaking to us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Get your Bibles out or your phones or your tablets. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. I want to begin with a story. It'll be two stories, personal stories that I'll share this morning. So you can just kind of kick back for this first story. Um, when I was the associate pastor of a church in Kirtland, Ohio, I was called to be the senior pastor of a church in a small town in Grable, Indiana. It's about 1,200 people. It was uh, across the river. When I say river, it's like a two miles. The St. Joseph's River was Leo, Indiana. It's kind of Leo Grable area. But anyways, that's not the point. The point is, is that that part of, and I didn't know at the time, but I learned, and it was so, so true, that part of Indiana, northeast Indiana, Indiana as a, as a state is pretty conservative, conservative. That part of the state had a heavy Mennonite influence. Uh, from the Mennonites came the Amish. Now, there are two things that stand out about the Mennonites slash Amish. Now, you know about the Amish in one sense, that they believe in you know, the holiness. You know, they call it that, but they don't live and buy into all the technology of the world. They're separate. They have the horses and the carriages and the clothes and so on. It'd kind of be great to be Amish in that way. There's only two benefits of being Amish, by the way. Your, your clothes, like either you wear black, and either was white and green or blue shirts, that's it, that's your choice. And the food, because it's all homemade food, which is nice. But that being said, the Mennonite Amish, two pillars of that belief system are... Uh, Believer's baptism. In order to be baptized, you have to be a believer, so they don't believe in infant baptism. And they're pacifists. And that's the key point that I want you to remember. They're pacifists. That is the culture in that part of Indiana. So when I left the church in Ohio, and two states couldn't be more opposite. You have a very driven state of Ohio, lots of industry, lots of farming, uh, lots of activity to do there, and then there's almost nothing to do in the state of Indiana. So I come to this church, and they were in the middle of a uh, building campaign and relocation. I say in the middle of it, it had been 10 years. They'd raised over a million dollars, and they needed to get to this new property, which is about, I don't know, not even a quarter mile away from where the building was. They wanted to get to a more public location. And when I was being interviewed, as happens in pretty much every church when you are interviewing a pastor, the church wants to put their best foot forward and give the least appearance that um, everything is well, right? And there appeared to be peace there. And not long after I arrived, I had learned that uh, a vote to move forward with the new design of this building that they were moving to had failed. And it failed because there was an individual that had undermined the leadership of the church 
heard about this vote that was coming, called people, lied and deceived, and swayed the vote so that the vote would fail. That had happened before I got there. I learned more details of it. Turns out that the gentleman that was responsible for that was part of a group of 12 to 15 older people that were continually fighting the move from the old church building to the new church building. Now, just so you know, I know that we all love the dreaded S word in the Bible, submission. Okay, now you've heard this before and we need to be reminded of it. There are two Greek words for submission in the Bible. And the New Testament talks about a husband and wife and the wife submits to the husband. That is of two equals in the eyes of God. The male and female, husband and wife, they're equal. But the wife voluntarily submits to the leadership of the husband by God's design. Okay? That's the Greek word, I believe it's hupotasso. The other Greek word for submission is hupokaio. And that is the word that is used for the parent to the child relationship, the employer to employee, the government to the, the civilian, and the leadership of the church, the elders to the congregation. That's a military term. That is a superior to an inferior. The government is our superior, we're the inferior. The parent is superior to the child. And yes, in the eyes of God, your elders, the leadership of the church is superior to the inferior of the congregation. What that means is, in its, a, in its a form, is that if the inferior asks a question to the superior, the superior doesn't have to answer the question. It's only by grace that the superior would answer that question. Does that make sense? You've got the parents, you want to raise your kids. There are certain things that they simply don't need to know, and you don't answer their questions. Now, I don't necessarily know that leading is the best way in that area, but that's how God views it, because God is big in authority. So when this gentleman undermined the leadership of the church, it was sin. It was wrong. It was causing division and so on. And they tolerated it. They did not deal with it. And guess who had to deal with that when they walked in? Because if this church was ever going to go forward, I had to deal with it. And I did. And as we went forward in this new building process, I had to survey the congregation and, and move this congregation forward because this church was on the verge of a split because they didn't want to move and the younger generation did. And there were so many things we had to do. We had to have votes on new designs and on the finances and we had to change the church government and so on. And consistently the vote passed with about... 12, the same 12 to 15 votes saying no. And of course, we identified that as this older group. Now, this older group had been in, in the words of some of the church board members, or the church board member, long time, long serving board member, they'd controlled the destiny of this church for 30 plus years. This was an older group that I would say simply played church. They were interested in one thing and one thing only, not advancing the church or making disciples or anything like that. They were interested in being in control. Now, it's shocking to all of you that that would actually happen in a church, but it does. When we got a new, there had been so much underlying conflict that had not been dealt with because of, can you get, give me a reason why? what I've talked about so far, why they wouldn't deal with that conflict. They are passive, heavily passive in the area. That the leadership of the church that had been gone through all this needed to step down, and I need to build a brand new church board. So I took these personality tests, these kind of Christian-based personality tests, and with the limited pool that we had, we brought together a team of people. And it meant that there were some new people that were on this new church board I had to create, and if you've ever been in a church where there is a lot of activity going on and you're moving forward with something like this, there's a lot of resistance. And I've seen it before and it happened in this case, people that are new to this type of pressure that they just kind of fold. Because it's, it's not just the emotional and mental pressure, there's a spiritual pressure that goes along with it. And so when we got this new board member, new board together, and we were working together to get everything to move forward, we had to sell our, our building. 
And of course, because everybody was basically related to everybody in this church, we went back to this realtor and we had a contract with him to sell the building. And guess what? He didn't want to move. So do you think he was aggressively marketing the church? No, there wasn't even a sign in the yard. And so we came to a point as a board where it was like, you either have to move forward and aggressively you know, market this, or we're going to have to go in a different direction. But the problem was, some of the new board members had done business with this man. And they didn't want to offend. Things were brought to a head in a board meeting, and this pattern began to be set where we had 80% of the, con- of the board had to approve, like four out of five, basically, to move forward with this stuff. And with this couple blocking things, this wasn't working. They eventually capitulated because they knew it was the right thing to do, but it was hard. When we moved forward into the new building, we got in there, it was good. But not long after that, um, the church began to grow, which was great. New building, new location, we've been averaging about 110, 120 people. Through that summer of August of 2011, we were averaging up to 165, 170 people. Through the summer, churches never grow in the summer for the most part because what happens in the summer? People go on vacations and kids and, and, and athletics and so on, but we were growing. But I noticed that we started to tail off and the tenants started to actually kind of go down. This was right around the time that this older group had had enough of me and decided that they wanted to get a, find a way to get rid of me. The history of this church was, in this denomination, was that they had every three years what was called a pastoral recall vote. In other words, you vote on whether you want the pastor to continue, and he has to pass by a 66% uh, percentage. Now, one of the previous youth pastors that served at this church left this church because of that, because it was a popularity vote. The day of the vote years ago when he was a youth pastor, one of the families came up to him and said, we're not going to vote for you to continue because you wouldn't go to all of my kids' athletic events. That stuff happens. We had gotten rid of that when we changed over to our new governance structure, but this older group wanted to get rid of me. So they talked to one of our board members, thought they could get a petition going and attempt to vote me out, and that's what they did. But of course, this was all wrong, and they were going about it lying, deceiving, and whatnot, and we had to be confronted. Now, a passive area of the state with passive leadership dealing with this group that did not like me, you can see where this is going. To make a long story short, we had to bring in the denomination and the president to kind of deal with this because the, I was taken out because they were attacking me. It looked like I'd be trying to protect myself, but this group needed to be addressed. One of the things, one of the verses that the couple, uh, godly couple, that um, it was just really hard, the situation that they stepped into as, as board members, is they brought up this verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, you want to know what that meant? What they were saying? They wanted to tolerate the sin for the sake of peace. Peace at any price. In the meantime, the church was unhealthy and it was on the verge of a split again. I'd taken all this information about what is going on to our board, our church board, and said, listen, these numbers are going down. And I shared with them that I I talked to other pastors in our denomination. I talked to my grandfather who for years served on the Wesleyan board of Central Ohio, and they'd seen this happen before. You have this type of sin or division in the church and it God doesn't bless a church and attendance goes down. This happens. I shared a story of, a, of another church just in Fort Wayne, a few miles from us, that had a youth pastor that had, had an, a, either a physical or an emotional affair with a student. And they found out about it and they wanted to restore the young man in his ministry. So they worked with him for six months and he really didn't respond. This church was, was growing. And guess what? The numbers started to go down. And one elder on that particular church board was passive and didn't want to confront. And so they let it go on for another three or four months. And finally, they, they'd had enough. And the elders decided to 
to get together. They voted out that particular elder, dealt with the young man, let him go. Three months later, a church was growing again. All that information shared with this board, it didn't do a thing to them. So when the denomination came in and took over and they dealt with it and so on, um, yeah, it was a hard situation. And by the time that was dealt with, the staff of the church were so tired that the youth pastor eventually left very soon. God called the uh, children's director to leave. And then later on that year, we decided it was probably time for us to move on, the board and I. But what I share that with you is that we're talking about peace. So many of us, so many churches, so many of you in your individual lives, in your relationships, you will tolerate sin for the sake of peace. Do you understand what I'm saying? Peace at any price. But the peace of the Bible is not peace at any price. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I want to talk to you this morning about what I call the quest for peace. In 1945, World War II had just ended. The nations of the world, they wanted to ensure that there would never be another world war. So surviving nations came together to develop an agency for world peace. What do they call that? The United Nations. Now the motto of the United Nations was set in 1945. Do you know what it is? To have succeeding Generations free from the scourge of war. How have they done? Not good. The world is filled with never-ending conflict. Now, the world may promise peace, right? We hear that all the time. The world may promise peace, but it only, and it can only, deliver a truce. Are you with me so far? Just follow me on this. Now, what's the difference between a truce and peace, as the world defines peace? Well, a truce says you lay down your guns and you stop shooting for a while. What follows is the world's definition of peace. It's that glorious brief moment in history when everybody stops shooting only to reload. You understand me? In this world... How many peace treaties do you think have been broken? The answer is all of them. The harsh truth, and maybe I'll burst some bubbles here, but this would be a good bubble to burst. The harsh truth is this. We have no ability to get along with each other. We have no ability to get along with each other. At the basic level of society, we have no peace. Just follow me up with this. The basic level of society, the, the, the basic building block is an individual. And every person who is ever born is conceived in what? Sin. Psalm 51. They enter the world as an enemy of God. And until that conflict with God is resolved, humanity does not know real peace. I mean, how many times have you heard of a... Of a unbeliever, they complain about the lack of peace in their lives. I'm just not at peace. You were there. I was there. Well, how about the next building block of society? That'll just be relationships or, or, or marriage. Can anyone honestly say that peace is the norm in the relationships you're in or in your marriage or in marriages in general in the world? The sheer number of breakups or divorces testify to the near constant conflict in the relationships between two people. How about family peace? The very first, think of this, the very first family unit that God created, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, gave us a preview of what family life in a fallen world will be like. Cain killed Abel out of jealousy, shattering forever the brief peace the first family knew. 
But communities, they're the next building blocks of society. Is there an abundance of peace in our communities? If you take Auburn, for example, Auburn, Washington, ask yourself, is there peace in Auburn? Well, the crime and violence alone in Auburn definitively answers that question. Well, how about outside the community of Auburn to the major cities? How about Seattle? Do they know real peace? Well, we all got front row seats to what they thought was going to be peace. What did they call it? Chop or Chaz. How'd that turn out? In violence, and sexual assaults, and murder. Okay, well, what if we go across just the state of Washington, just because we're in Washington, this is true of every state in the United States, you will not find real peace but ongoing conflict. This is the reason why every community in Washington state has what? A police force. If there was real peace, there would be no need for the police. And across our nation, is there peace? Well, the peaceful protests from coast to coast have turned into what? Rioting, looting, and murder. Just violence. And this is just in America. What about worldwide? Every young woman that enters the Miss America pageant gives the same answer to the question, what is the one most important thing to our, our society needs? World peace. Yet the world is still full of war. Jesus Christ provided peace with God for humanity by his death on the cross. That peace with God was forfeited by our sin, but it's been restored by Jesus Christ. Now, in the individual which is the first building block of society, can know peace in their heart with God as they come to know Jesus. Now, they can know his peace experientially in this fallen world. Now, someday in the future, Jesus will come again as who? The Prince of Peace. He will establish his kingdom of peace which will usher in an age of eternal peace. In Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, reminds us that God has called us in the world to restore the peace that was lost at the fall. He has designated, and you need to hear me on this, because if you're a believer, this is what you are to do with your life. He has designated a group of special people, and he calls them peacemakers. Let's talk about real peace. What is biblical peace? Well, some people think, and, and perhaps... I know I used to think this and how naive I was, and my guess is that some of you did as well, but that peace is the absence of conflict. Maybe in a difficult situation and it's a, in a relationship and the person leaves and you finally say, oh, there's peace, but you're not really reconciled to that person. So guess what? The next time they're back in your life, what happens? There's more conflict and you're not at peace. But we think that peace is the absence of conflict. However, peace as God sees it is far more than the absence of something. It is the presence of something. Just listen to me. If you go back to the story I shared at the beginning of the sermon, I would tell you that Crossview Church, when I arrived there, had the appearance of peace because no one was dealing with the underlying conflict. Everything looked good on the outside, yet the church was dying on the verge of a split. So there was peace as the world defines it, the absence of conflict, but the church was not healthy. Now, what was missing? Well, 
Everybody needs to turn in their Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It's near the back of your Bible, James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I learned a lot in preparing this sermon. Other verses that I knew and applied throughout my years of life and some really neat things I learned that the Bible is so consistent about that talk about peace. Because remember, peace is biblical peace. It's not the absence of something, but the presence of something. And this is what it is. James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above, and the wisdom from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now listen to me. This is the one thing I want you to get out of this sermon. Because you all have a tendency to remember the stories I share, but please remember this. And it would do well maybe if you memorize James 3, 17 to 18. The wisdom from God, according to James 3, 17, finds its way to peace through what? Let the text interpret the text. The wisdom from God finds its way to peace through what? What does it say? No. Verse 17. The wisdom from above is what? You find peace through what? Purity. Do you see that? What is wisdom? It's first of all what? Pure. Then, it's what? Peaceable. In other words, peace is never sought at the expense of purity. You have not made peace between two people in conflict. I mean, this will help you understand it. Two people in conflict. You have not made peace with two people in conflict unless they have seen their sin and resolved to bring it before God and make it right. Right? Does that make sense? Only then, through purity, comes peace. Peace that ignores purity is not the peace that God demands. This was the problem at Crossview Church. Does that connection, are you catching that? There was the conflict. There wasn't purity there. There was deception. There was division. All of that. There was the appearance of peace, but there was never peace. Until that was dealt with, and when it was, what followed? Real peace. Does that make sense? You cannot separate peace from purity. Now, this same idea is presented to us through the writer of Hebrews. Let's listen to Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You cannot separate peace from holiness. Holiness is another word for what? Purity. How about this verse? Psalm 85.10. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So you cannot separate peace from righteousness. Where there is real peace, there is righteousness. Where there is real peace, there is holiness. Where there is real peace, there is purity. Why? Because righteousness, holiness, and purity fix the sin problem. Righteousness, holiness, and purity fix the sin problem. The peace of the Bible is not peace at any price. It isn't a gloss that shines the wood while inwardly the wood is decayed and rotten. See, the peace of the Bible conquers the problem. And folks, sometimes peace means struggle. It means pain. It means anguish. And it may even mean more conflict. But in the end, real peace comes. You are at peace with God through great pain and anguish and suffering from one individual, Jesus Christ. 
And when you understand biblical peace, it opens up other verses that have probably confused you. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 38. Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 38. Because you're going to read this and say, this makes no sense after reading Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? They shall be called sons of God. Matthew 10, 34 through 38. Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, we are tempted to think the obvious, that what? Jesus is contradicting himself. But this is the opposite of Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And what does Jesus mean in that verse? Well, simply put, Jesus did not come to bring peace at any price. He knew that there had to be conflict before there could be peace. In this case, making peace with God and following Jesus comes with a price. And what's the price? Potential conflict within families. You have probably all heard of stories of people that have come to faith in Christ and been dis disowned by their families. Can you raise your hand if you ever heard a story about that? It's not, I'm going to come to Christ, I won't let my family know, and I'm not only really going to live it out in front of them. No, 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 no. You live it out, you're totally sold out to Jesus Christ, there's a conflict that comes. Can come, that is. And it may mean separation from your family. Because your allegiance to him is what takes the priority. But see, this is what happens when the truth is brought to bear upon a world that loves falsehood. You remember these pictures here in the background. It's a, we're in a, be, to be different because we're in a war for the truth, light and darkness, truth and lies. And when a, a family unit that is unbelieving is, is in bondage to lies, truth is brought to them, there will be conflict. There will be conflict. I mean, the same thought is found in Luke 12, 51 to 53. Just listen to this. Jesus says this, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What? For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. When people come to Jesus Christ, there will be conflict. Jesus knows that true peace, his peace, can only come when truth reigns. And we are seeing that play out in our world today because you have people living in lies, just for example in Portland, that are just constantly destroying that city. And the truth is trying to be brought upon them by the police force that is being held up by corrupt government leaders. And it's just this conflict. It's lies and truth. Violence versus peace. All of that. But real peace only comes when truth reigns. And his peace is more than a truce. It's real. Now there's one more verse that I think you understand now. That we have an understanding of biblical peace. It's not peace at any price. It's a peace that is only obtained through righteousness, through holiness, or through purity, meaning you deal with the issue. You deal with the sin, you bring the two parties together, they name it, they repent of it before God, then there is real peace. Sweep it under the rug, and the appearance of peace, uh-uh. By the way, 
One of the last sermon series I preached at Crossview Church was a sermon series called Angry Birds. How to deal with conflict in your life. And one of the board members that I'd been working with for years there said to me, this sermon series is long overdue. This should have been preached years ago. I was trying to teach them how to deal with their conflict. But John 14, 27, you probably recognize this verse, and I want you to understand it because I think it'll be really helpful to you. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, Jesus doesn't give as the world gives. What does the world give in regards to peace? It can only give you what? A truce. What does Jesus give you? Real peace. Do you see that? So he doesn't give as the world gives. He doesn't give a truce. He doesn't give a false peace. What does he give? Real peace. Now this verse, I believe, John 14, 27, it's implying two types of peace that Jesus gives. There's a positional peace and there's a real life experiential peace. If you are a believer and you are not at peace, listen to me because you're forfeiting your birthright, what is available to you to experience moment by moment. Now positionally, you have a peace. You are at peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We're at peace with God through Jesus Christ. You follow me so far? Romans 5.1, write that down if you want to. You are no longer an enemy of God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Here's the point now. Believers and only believers can experience This peace, his peace, real peace, moment by moment in everyday life. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the problem of sin and made peace, and in doing so, he has what? Overcome the world. So our hearts, as it says in John 14, 27, do not have to be troubled or afraid. Now, we know that there will be conflict in this world, but the peace of God, the Bible says, in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, goes beyond human understanding. It guards the believer's hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is this, what this verse means is this, that despite the circumstances that you may be in in your life, circumstances where you should be anxious, you should be worried, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're filled with the Spirit. You claim the promise of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. What is that promise? Does anyone know that verse by heart, by chance? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That despite circumstances that should make you feel troubled and afraid in your life, you find instead within your heart peace. Well, why is that? It doesn't make sense. If you've ever been in a situation where you should be overwhelmed and you're at peace, maybe you thought like I have, what's wrong with me? Why am I not freaking out, right? Well, no. That's the peace that God provides. That's the peace of Jesus. It's the same peace that he had when he was being crucified, going through the whole process, he was still at peace. That's the experiential part of the peace that he gives you. He overcame the world so you don't have to be afraid. You have to be troubled. And it's only for believers. So claim it. Let's take a moment and talk about being a peacemaker. In order to be a peacemaker, we have to go back, and I, again, I keep doing this over and over and over again so you guys get it. Go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. Because you can't be a peacemaker unless you follow the first six. Just listen to me here. Because there's a beautiful, interconnected logic to our Lord's teaching. It's reasonable. It begins with dealing with sin in your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
So you start out with this beggarly attitude toward your own sinfulness. You kind of cower in the corners I went over, crouching in the dark, reaching out your hand with your head bowed down because you are poor in spirit, totally unable to earn the favor of God, and you cry out because you can't earn his righteousness on your own. That person is happy. And happy are they, or blessed are they that mourn. You weep and you mourn over your sin. Your heart burns and aches over your sinfulness. And that leads to the next thing. Blessed are the meek. You see yourself before an absolutely sovereign and holy God as something worth nothing. And the meekness is born out of the mourning that's born out of the cowardliness that comes from seeing your sinfulness. You are humble before him. And at that point, your meekness comes to verse 6. You find within yourself a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. The one thing that you're to seek, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He shares his righteousness with you. And when you receive it, you've experienced some of his mercy. And out of gratitude, blessed are the merciful, out of gratitude for the mercy of God, and it's mercy that God didn't treat you according to your sin, by the way. Because if he did, you'd get justice, and you don't want justice. We want mercy. We want grace. You extend that mercy to other people. And then finally, blessed are the pure in heart. Now watch this. When you are pure in heart, what can you then do next? Say it again. You don't follow me? Then you can be what? A peacemaker. Why? What comes before peace? Purity. You follow me? And by the way, what's going to come after blessed are the peacemakers? Conflict. Blessed are those who are persecuted. When you're making peace, there's going to be conflict. See, that's the whole point. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, what is that? What does he mean when he says we're to be peacemakers? Well, obviously, humanity is wicked. It's evil. It will never know real peace. Both the Old and New Testament witness to this truth. Isaiah 57, 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Unbelievers don't know real peace. New Testament. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, talking to the Pharisees, this is Jesus speaking to Pharisees, unbelievers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. An internally defiled man from whom proceeds an evil, all kinds of evil, they have a heart that can never produce peace. Because peace is a result of what? Purity, righteousness, holiness. You follow me so far? I really want to make sure you get this point. Peace only comes through what? Purity. Peace is a result of holiness. Peace is a result of righteousness. Peace is a result of purity. And it is to these wicked and evil people, an unbelieving, dying, wicked, evil people, that we are to bring the peace of God. Being a peacemaker means we are to be actively involved in sharing our faith. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. Speaking of the blessings of God, it says, All this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You could take the word reconciled and put in the word peace there. He made peace to himself and gave us the ministry of peace. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not carrying their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's a message of peace. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, being a peacemaker, it means also we strive to live peacefully with others, even if it is awkward or painful. Do you remember the verse I shared with you that that couple quoted, and I know all of us have probably lived our lives in some form or fashion according to that verse, but it's this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That was taken way out of context. Tolerating sin for the sake of peace. No, that, that, that's not what that verse means. But it does mean, in a life situation I'm about to share with you, this. When Erica and I, and uh, David, or Jacob and David, moved from our home in Bowling Green, Ohio, to another home to be closer to campus. It was in a house that we called was in the war zone. It was about a quarter mile from the Bowling Green State University campus, right near a main intersection, Bowling Green, and they're all bars were kind of behind our house. They were kind of down in, in a way, but the college students would walk down the street, past the house, and go to the bars. 11 o'clock at night, these these crowds going down and three o'clock going back. And we wanted to live there because this is where the college students were and it was the war zone. God had provided this house for us. It was a huge old home. I've shown you pictures years ago, but it was just a, probably the nicest home we will ever live in. Old, old, built in 1897. The old balloon construction, uh, you know, hardwood everywhere, just a beautiful big home. Now we had Jacob and Mark, Mark, you were in 2001, four years old, two years old, two years old, that's right, Jacob was four years old, and Erica was pregnant with David, and we moved, and being the laid back people that Erica and I are, we didn't push to get moved in, right, no, we pushed ourselves and we were tired, and while we were there, and uh, in moving in, we had two young kids and a dog, and we put a fence up, a chain link fence around our property to protect our kids, and so the dog could run around. We wanted the dog also out there for some protection. Um, well, one night while we were uh, there, and the dog was out and was barking, and we were so tired and were sort of oblivious to that, and it kind of bothered some neighbors. So one morning, we were, or one afternoon, we were up and with the kids, and we were just still recovering from everything, and I get a knock on the door, and it's this lady who lived in a house, catty corner from us. I can immediately tell when I look at her, she was a bitter woman, and she just went off in front of me, in front of the kids. So here I am, there's uh, Jacob and, 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 and Mark, the door with me, and this woman is going off on our dog, barking and everything. And it was, it was nasty and bad, so much I had to go out, Closed the door. Erica was in tears at this point in time. She grabbed the kids, and I kind of confronted this lady, and I said, who do you think you are? Going off in front of my family and my kids. We'll take care of the dog, but is this how you treat your neighbors? Now, reeling from that, and being my wife being pregnant, having young kids, you know, we, you couldn't pay me enough money to go back to that time in my life, by the way. I mean, it's just, it's just I love my children, but it's just tiring. We also had a problem with the neighbors next to us, all because we put up a fence and did not consult them. I came uh, to check on the progress of the, the fence one day, and I was immediately confronted by the, a hot-headed redhead named Cynthia Beck and her husband, who was a nice guy, but Cindy was really upset, and went off on me because we had put this fence up. On our property, our right, to protect our kids and so they could play in the backyard and our dog could run. So we're sitting there after I explained this to Erica and we had this confrontation with this other neighbor thinking, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? Tired, overwhelmed. You think it would end there, but it doesn't. I have and I kept this from August, dated August 3rd, 2001, a letter we got in the mail from our neighbor next door. Cynthia Beck 
PhD, 319 North Prospect Street, Bowling Green, Ohio. In this letter, uh, it's funny reading it years later, but she felt like she had to educate us on how to be neighborly. Um, it, it was very well written, but she had some good points about how people try to keep these older houses really nice and that they have problems with the college students. Um, just put it in perspective, and this is true, and we dealt with it as well. All those older homes have, most of you that are younger don't know now, front porches. <laughs> they built homes back in the day with front porches to help with controlling the heat. It's going to get hot in the summer, you had extra shade, and so on and so forth. Well, all of the neighbors screwed their patio furniture or the front porch furniture into the hardwood because the college students would steal it. They were drunk. We had a, a young, I'm assuming it was a girl, come up to our house uh, a couple years later, had the screwdriver, and she unscrewed the plaque we had by our front door. Because only way it could have gotten out. Uh, one winter morning, I woke up to a pounding on our door at 2 o'clock. It was a drunk college student. He thought he was home. We called the police, and they immediately took care of it because they were always out during the Friday and Saturday nights. So that was the neighborhood we lived in. And the neighborhood was concerned about some of the preservation of the property. And there was a close bond between the neighbors. They created a citizens on patrol program. But this is what she wrote. It says, while a few individuals may have spoken to you about a concern or two, most are reluctant to speak up publicly and most will be polite to you when you meet face to face. However, there are concerns being expressed privately and hard feelings beginning to grow. Because we, or they, felt like they were threatened by new residents who seemed to be unconcerned about others. In other words, we put up a fence, therefore we, they were unconcerned about, we weren't concerned about others. Personally, there are several problems I need to bring to your attention. First of all, while your dog may be harmless, her barking is quite disconcerting and threatening. They were right in that, and we dealt with that. Dave and I have parents in their 70s and 80s and have been frightened by your barking dog as they arrive for a visit. Good. <laughs> in that neighborhood, that's what we wanted. By the way, years later, that dog cornered a, a, a criminal that escaped from the courthouse down the road, <laughs> forced him to jump back into another yard and eventually got caught by the police. I would point out to you that within the block, there are at least four other dogs, none of which we hear on a regular basis. There have been occasions on which I've been forced to leave my deck and sit inside my house due to the excessive barking of your dog. Secondly, although we expressed our concern about the fence you erected prior to its being completed, you were unwilling to discuss any alternatives, which that simply wasn't true. They didn't like the fact that I didn't consult them on it. Not only do we believe the fence is unsightly and inappropriate for the architecture of the neighborhood, it causes a great inconvenience for us when we try to enter and exit the passenger side of our car. We know that, as you stated, you have the legal right to erect such a fence. We feel it was disrespectful to ignore us in your decisions. We had, in the past, discussed replacing the fence with the previous owners of your house, the other type of fence in which they were interested in was a split rail fence that just simply wouldn't work. And so nothing was done. And finally, when the back section fell apart over the winter, we decided to wait until the house was sold to discuss the replacement with the new owners. In other words, we didn't have the right to erect the fence of our choice, according to our neighbors. The erection of your fence has resulted in the Proliferation of weeds growing between the original turn-of-the-century fence and your new one. <gasps> oh, my. That's awful. Weeds grew. That's unheard of, isn't it? And your new one. And now no one is able to weed the area between the fences. Using a vegetation killer is not an option since it would leach into my planting bed next to our driveway. I spend hours tending my plantings, and I'm upset because these weeds are spreading into my plants and flowers. 
Third, your trash container is an eyesore and is visible to us each time we arrive and leave our home. We've always been concerned with not just our own convenience, but also what our neighbor, neighbors have had to view from their perspective. Hence, the fence behind our garage to hide unsightly trash cans and gardening apparatus from your view. And the fence around our air conditioning unit on the south side of our house. Fourth, every night, you leave the outside light on next to our driveway. <gasps> Why would I want to leave the outside light on in a, a neighborhood that has crime? Why would you want to do that, right? The light shines into our house, and I find it offensive. Please notice that the motion sensor light over our garage is shielded in order to prevent it being, its beam from shining into your house at night. Here's the kicker. Please understand, we want to be neighborly. That's just the portion of the letter. You can imagine the response from Erica when uh, she read that. Now, what in the world do you do with that? Move there for a ministry of reconciliation, and we are immediately attacked with a bitter woman in a catty corner from us, and now our next-door neighbor. Awkward, right? Well, here's what happened. The husband, Damon, was far more reasonable and more likable, and he began to warm up to us and was kind of a barrier between his, his wife and us. And we were, he liked the kids and got to know our, our dog, Delilah. And one day we were out, Eric and I were out there in the backyard, and Cindy and Damien pulled up. And Damien was talking to the dog. And Eric looked at me and I looked at her, and we began to awkwardly broach the letter that we received with them. And remember, blessed are what? The peacemakers. They're called sons of God. And as we began to talk... Um, they saw that we weren't as unreasonable as... I mean, if, if, when she came to me when that first fence went up and she was all... Uh, I use it as a joke, a hot-headed redhead because I know they can be that way. My mom is that way, but she was a classic example of that. There was no discussion. It was her way or the highway. I was like, well, I'm not going to agree with that. But we talked, and in the end, they ended up tearing down that portion of the fence next to their house and put up an expensive black wrought iron fence. And the relationship began to be healed, and the tensions cooled, and you know, things began to work out. This was on August 3rd, we got the letter, probably September. They had their fence up. $1,200 they spent for a small section of fence. We didn't spend that much more for this whole chain link fence. Actually, my parents gave us money for that. Well, that broke the ice. You come to... Now, October 30th, which is, of course, what? Halloween. Damon and I had spent a lot of time talking and, and so on. He kept mentioning to me, you know, your kids are going to do Halloween, right? They're going to do Halloween. They're going to do Halloween. And, you know, as a believers, do we really want our kids to do Halloween? Well, okay. I am very slow. I'm not the most, um, well, the perceptive. But when he kept coming to me about Halloween, 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 I thought, we need to get these kids ready for Halloween. So I told Erica, and we rushed together to get you guys into something. And we took them to go trick-or-treating and went to the house next door, Damon and Cynthia Beck's house. <laughs> now there was, you know, kids that were, that were there getting candy, and our kids were kind of in line. And when our kids got up there, they stopped the line. And a line began to form. And they had little, you know, baskets of candy that they were giving candy to kids. But when our kids showed up, they went inside and they brought out a big basket of candy for each of our children. And they just showered their affection upon them. And from that time on... They became like, in a sense, grandparents. They would, we would, they would take the kids and go to the parking lot and help them learn how to ride bikes. We would trust them with their kids. You know, we were sharing you know, food back and forth and so on. When we moved to Indiana, or back actually to, to Cleveland, Ohio, and then to Indiana, 
Damon eventually passed away of bladder cancer, and Cynthia Beck was leaving, and we visited her from Indiana, came and helped her move from her place to another place in Ohio. And they are very, very close, dear friends. I don't know if Cynthia's still alive or not. She was a chain smoker. She uh, had to carry oxygen around for a while, but she got better. But it is a, a, a classic example of, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with others. Now, she was offensive. We had done nothing wrong in putting up a fence. We were within our right. But we are called to something higher, aren't we? Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And I want to close with this. What I call an honorable son Peacemakers are called what? Sons of God. The word here used for son, it speaks of dignity and honor and standing. In other words, Jesus is not just talking about the affections that God has for his children. He's talking about the dignity and honor of being a son of God. You see, ours, and only ours, is the distinction of being sons or daughters of God. And according to Jesus, and I want you to hear me on this, you know how you can tell a son of God. How? Let the text determine the text. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God are peacemakers. This is the mark of a true Christian. Now, if your life is marked by discord and disruption, and if the longing of the deepest part of your heart is not to be a peacemaker. That is not a good thing, folks. Examine your heart. See if you are even in the faith because that longing should be deep within you because that's who God is and that's who his children are. They are peacemakers. And the grammar of this structure of the Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It tells us that from here on out, throughout eternity, his children shall continue to be called the sons of God. Thus, it is our ongoing peacemaking that we become recognizable as sons of God. So what is the mark of a believer? According to the sermon this morning, you're a peacemaker. Eric Little, the Scottish runner who was portrayed in the movie Chariots of Fire, he served as a missionary in China for 20 years, the last two in a Japanese internment camp during the Second World War. He was known as a peacemaker among individuals and groups whenever anger flared in the stressful environment of the camp. Now, Little's life left a deep impression on everyone, and when a Japanese guard asked why Little was not at roll call one day, a man told him that Eric had died unexpectedly a few hours earlier. The guard paused and replied, Little was a Christian, wasn't he? Little spoke no Japanese. The guard spoke no English. Their only direct contact was at the required roll calls twice a day. Now, how did the guard know that Little was a Christian? He must have seen Christ and Eric as they resolved conflicts in the camp. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. In this case, the fruit of peacemaking. In the early years of my ministry, I was trained to think that a person was a Christian if they could tell me the moment they made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. You ever heard that before? I would ask them, are you a Christian? Of course, they would say, oh, yeah. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? This is what some of the answers I would get. Oh, I remember when I made a decision. I remember when I walked the aisle at church. I remember when I raised my hand at a Christian conference. I remember when I signed the card. If you were to ask Jesus Christ, or if you asked the question, how do you know you're a Christian? I suspect that he would be looking for an answer similar to this. How do I know I'm a Christian? Oh, I'm poor in spirit, unable to meet God's standard of righteousness. I mourn over my sin that offends God deeply. I'm meek before him as I begin to grasp my sinfulness compared to his holiness. I hunger and thirst for his righteousness 
because it's my only hope for salvation. I've seen his mercy touch my life and I desire to give it to others. I've experienced purity of heart and have seen God at work in my life and I know what it is to be a peacemaker. Those are the conditions Jesus gave for truly being a son of his kingdom. Not some decision to walk down the aisle in church or raise your hand after you recited the sinner's prayer. Now, you want to know why it's an honor, by the way, to be called a son or daughter of God? Just take a look at this. This is just a sampling, and there's going to be four slides I'll have you read as we go through this. I mean, God says we are his jewels. Do you know that? We're going to be part of that crown that he makes when he takes his jewels and makes them his own. He keeps our tears in his bottle. So he'll know the sorrows we've been through, and he will personally wipe away every tear as a loving father does. Our death is precious to him as he can then finally share his fullness, fullness of his presence with us. Precious in the sight of God is what? The death of his children, of his righteous ones. He makes us fellow heirs. He makes us the excellence of the earth. We are vessels of honor. We can even sit... It's awesome. We, can, we even get to sit with him on his throne like little children, jumping on the lap of a father. He has a personal eternal love for you. God considers you a friend. God grants you the liberty of unlimited access to him. God bears with your weakness and your sin. God accepts your imperfect service. God provides for your every need. God shields you from every danger. He provides fatherly comfort when needed. He reveals to you his eternal truth. He forgives and he keeps on forgiving when you sin. He works everything for your good. He keeps you from perishing forever. He gives you heaven. Yeah, it's a privilege, an honor to be called a son or daughter of God. And Jesus is saying here, the world will know I will know, and more importantly, you will know that you are indeed a believer. You are my daughter. You are my son. If you are first and foremost, what? A peacemaker. That means that you do this. I don't know what the issues, the circumstances, the history, the broken relationships in your lives. But I do know this. You're called to make peace with those people. And so, go before the Lord, and you probably know already, if you are not at peace with somebody, as long as it's, if it's at all possible, within reason, do whatever it takes to be at peace with them. Be a peacemaker. Even if it's awkward, even if it's painful, then you will know that you are a son or daughter of God. Let's pray. Father, blessed are the peacemakers, and thank you that we are only at peace with you because of what you've done. You demonstrate for us sometimes the cost that, it, that we must pay, the price we must pay to be at peace with people. May we prove ourselves to be sons and daughters of God by our peacemaking. Amen. Do you stand? We're going to close with a song and then have another brief announcement, and then we'll be dismissed.